Church, well, good morning. It's so good to have all of you here. I did want to share, there's one announcement that did not make it into the video because it, it kind of developed after the fact, but actually this Wednesday, Bob is going to be coming here to the church uh, during Cal for a Q&A session between uh, the PNC team and him. And this is open to everybody, members or non-members. This is going to take place instead of Cal classes, uh, but uh, kids ministry and student ministry will be doing their own things. You can check out their websites or their newsletters for info on that. But that's this Wednesday uh, in preparation for next Sunday. Bob will be here. Uh, you can actually submit a question in advance. The PNC is receiving those. Uh, you just send it to their PNC email, uh, and they're taking those questions between now and noon on Tuesday, okay? Uh, and if you want to learn more about any of that, all you got to do, do is go to clcfamily.church/pnc. Does that sound good? Awesome. I think my mic might be just a tad hot if you could bring that down. Is that okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Hey, welcome. We're so grateful to, yeah, they're like, thumbs up. Yeah, Christian. Uh, hey, welcome to church. We're so grateful to have you guys here. Uh, really, real quick, as the video also mentioned, next week we get to welcome in, uh, to, to vote. We're welcoming the PNC to make their nomination from the church uh, to possibly vote in a pastor. Um, and I want to recognize the PNC for a minute because they've been doing so much work. Uh, I got an email this week that they wanted to meet at 9 p.m. And I'm a youth pastor, and that's a little late for me. Um, and so can we just go ahead and thank them for all the countless hours that they put in? It's a great group of people, and they've been putting in so much time and energy, and I think they've been serving this church so faithfully. So we invite you to come out to that next week, and again, it's Wednesday for the Q&A. All right, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to get started. Today I get to wrap up our road trip series. This three-year journey that the disciples have made with Jesus comes to an end in Jerusalem. And they arrive at this place that we know as the temple during Passover. So there's a lot happening right here. So they're arriving in Jerusalem. Their three-year journey comes to an end. And this marks the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry. And he's at the temple. So today's story is going to be one of him at the temple. But it's also going to be a story of disruption. And I don't know about you, but I do not like disruptions, right? If there's any disruptions in my life, I think that most of them are void of any kind of joy, right? They're stressful. They are anxiety-inducing, and they remind us that we aren't in control. And so today's story is one of those stories. And I figured, let me start by sharing a story of my own uh, disruption that I've experienced. Uh, I recall it was about six years ago. My wife and I just got married, and we moved to Tennessee, which, uh, which is where we lived for a few years. And uh, I moved to Tennessee, and I needed a car, so we went to a dealer and found a car that I really liked. And so we said, yeah, you know, we'll take it. We still had to work out some of the financing, so the dealer was like, hey, you know what? Take it home tonight and come back tomorrow, and we'll finish the rest of that out, okay? It's bad. Um, I take the car home, you know, and I, and I park it in a parking spot, and I'm like, oh, like, you know, we shouldn't park it here. This is a pretty crowded part of the lot, so let's move it to the corner of the lot where nobody parks, right? And so I move the car and park it into a vacant spot. Fast forward to the next day, I'm in a meeting uh, at the church. I just started at this church, and so I was a meeting, in a meeting with my pastors, a really important meeting, and it's just me and them. And uh, we're meeting, and my wife starts calling me. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll let us send it to voicemail. I kind of hang up on her real quick. And then she calls again. <laughs> so I'm in a meeting, <laughs> so I hang up on her again. And then she calls a third time. And we made a rule previously that if you call three times immediately, someone must be dying or something's terribly wrong, right? So here I am in this meeting thinking, my wife is dying. Oh, my gosh. And so I, 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 I kind of interrupt the meeting. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have to take this phone call. Okay? So I pick up the phone, and my wife's on the other line in a panic. She's just totally freaking out. And she's telling me, I was outside, I was taking the dog for a walk, and I heard a tree branch start to break. And then I looked, and I saw and watched a tree branch fall on the car that you do not own. 
Talk about disruption, right? I was starting to be in a panic. I was like, I got to go. I got to go assess the damage. I got to figure out what we're going to do. It was a disruption for me. But guess what? It was also a disruption for the dealer. Because I called them and I said, hey, yeah, you know, not really feeling the car. Don't really want the car. Could you also come and pick it up? A tree branch fell on it, right? And so it was just total disruption. Nobody likes disruption, right? And none of us are strangers to it. Just look at the past two years, right? We've had a global pandemic. We've had a lot of transition at the church, right? Maybe it's been a cancer diagnosis in your family or for a loved one. Or maybe it's losing a friend or a family member. Loss of job or income, or we've all seen it, the great political and social conflict, right? This has been a disruptive season. So we are no strangers to disruption. And so today's story is one of disruption, but I'm not going to advocate that we avoid disruption. In fact, in today's story, I'm going to advocate that we lean in. I'm not going to advocate that we curate our lives to avoid disruption whenever possible, but instead, I'm going to advocate that we lean in. Because, and I'm going to ruin the ending here, I'm going to kind of spoil the ending. If you remember anything from this sermon, aside from borrowing a car that's not yours, don't do that. If you learn anything else from this sermon, it's this. God will disrupt anything that obstructs our ability to encounter him. I'm going to say it again. God is willing to disrupt anything that obstructs our ability to encounter him. And today's story is one just like that. So my prayer for us as a church, what I hope that we can pray is, God, may we make space for holy disruptions in our life, right? God, may we make space to encounter you in the unanticipated and the unprecedented, right? God, may we make space for holy disruptions. And so today is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, right? One that many of us know. This is a story that's preserved in each of the Gospels, and it's a picture of Jesus that we don't often see, right? He is mad. He is frustrated. It's a picture of Jesus that probably some of us don't want to see, right? We don't want to see a Jesus that is furious, right? And so to set the stage for the story, I want to remind us big picture of what is going on in the scriptures, right? I want to remind us of God's big plan for humanity. And the purpose of everything, the purpose of what God is doing, is to exist with his children again, right? The reason for God doing all that he does is to have a relationship with all people, right? And so this started in the Garden of Eden, right? We see it in the Garden, this place where man and woman could coexist with God without shame, right? But then... That didn't end so well. And so in Leviticus, God makes a plan B. It is called the tabernacle. And we actually have a photo of a tabernacle. A tabernacle was a portable tent that Israel brought with them on their journey. It was a hot spot for God's presence. They would follow these rituals and these rules that would enable them to, one, again, coexist with God. This was God's means to be in their presence, to be in their midst, right? And then after that, after the tabernacle, they set up a more permanent fixture called the temple. And we have a picture of that. The temple was a permanent location for people to encounter God. They'd have rituals, they'd have practices, spiritual disciplines that would enable them to share space with God, right? And again, let's remind ourselves, why is this important? Because God is trying to coexist with creation again. God is trying to exist with all of us despite our mess. And so we're going to be in the temple today. And the timing, again, is really important here. If we remember, it's Passover. So what that means is everybody is coming to Jerusalem. Hundreds and thousands of people are heading to Jerusalem. Where? To the temple, right? And the temple was this really important place uh, in antiquity during this time. In fact, the temple was, a lo- it was the center of the social, uh, theological, and political activities. The temple was the center of the town. Everything happened here, and everybody is going there. And that is the location of today's story. And so Jesus is welcomed into the city, right? We talked about that last week during Palm Sunday. And his first stop was the temple. So 
We're going to read of this crazy story, but before we do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your scriptures are a gift to us. It's something you give to us so that we might be formed in your likeness, so that we might learn more about your plans for our life, and so that we might learn more about how much you love us. And so God, we pray that your spirit would speak through them today and that we would receive from you uh, and that you would show us a bit more about ourselves, a bit more about you, and a bit more about our world. And so God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 19, verse 45. If you have a phone, you can scroll on there and check it out. You can use a pew Bible, and you can take one home if you don't have one. Or if you're online, you guys could pull it up online as well. Here it is, Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. Very easy thing. So he enters the temple and begins to drive people out. Out of all of the accounts in the Gospels, every Gospel writer includes a story. Out of all the accounts, Luke is the most succinct. So what I thought I'd do is, hey, I'm going to bring in John's account to give us a little bit more color, to give us more detail. So this is what it says in John chapter 2, verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I have this category in my mind when I read scripture of what passages and what stories will go viral on TikTok, right? Or viral on Facebook, okay, right? We think of Moses splitting the Red Sea. That is a TikTok moment, right? We think of the talking donkey. That is a TikTok moment, right? The moment when Jesus is at that wedding and he turns water into wine, right? That would be a viral moment. And I'm sure many of you would look up how-to videos about that, right? This is a viral moment. So this passage today, as I'm reading it, I feel like the caption would say, there's a weird man in a robe who makes a whip and flips tables at a church during the church's annual festival, right? This would have been absurd for this to happen during Passover in the temple of all places. And for Jesus to do this would have been baffling, right? And so, uh, let's unpack what is going on here. He just rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. First stop after this huge road trip is going to the temple and flipping tables. He's mad and he's not afraid to show it, right? And so again, let's unpack what's going on here. It's during Passover. It's the biggest festival of the year. And so hundreds and thousands of people would have been watching Jesus do this. They would see this guy from Nazareth. They'd see this guy that they heard of flipping tables and whipping people and animals out of the temple. Talk about shameful, right? So, so many people were there seeing this. And at the time, the religious leaders at the time decided to capitalize on this moment, right? What they were doing is they said, hey, let's bring in our vendors. Let's bring people here so they can buy animals for their sacrifices, right? Because during Passover, everybody had to sacrifice an animal that was part of the ritual, that was part of the, uh, the Passover practices. And so the, 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 the people leading the temple, they were like, well, let's just bring in a bunch of vendors to the temple courts and let's just sell animals, right? Let's help them out, right? Because if people are traveling so far, They're not going to bring an animal with them. That's just not practical, right? Anyone who has a child and tries to do a road trip, they know what I'm talking about, right? It's difficult to travel long distances with something or someone that you cannot control. And I don't mean to liken, you know, kids to animals, but I think you know what I'm getting at, right? So they would set up vendors in the temple courts and say, hey, you can buy your sheep and your oxen here for your sacrifice, right? But it's even more... It's even more problematic if you look into the details because what they're doing is they're selling in the temple, of course, but they are raising the prices way high because where else are you going to get these commodities, right? They are raising, they're price gouging here, and they're even price gouging the poor because they only sold pigeons to people who could not afford the sheep and the oxen. And so people were coming in to church, to the temple, to do their annual practices of Passover, and they're, they're having to pay so much to be able to participate in that, right? 
And then you have the money changers because the temple can't accept the currency of out, you know, out of town currency. And so you go to the money changers table and you would exchange your currency, right? And this was taking place in the temple courts. I actually have a diagram that we want to show you guys of what this might have looked like. Here's a picture of what the temple would have looked like. We have the Israelite court at the top there. That is only where Israelite men could gather at the court place. Then we have the women's court, which was open to Israelite women. But then the Gentile court is where everyone who was not a Jew would go. That's the furthest they could get to the temple. If they're traveling out of town, that's the closest they could get to the presence of God. And it was in those courts that the vendors were placed. It's a very big space, right? It's in those courts that the vendors set up their shops. It's in those courts where the Gentiles could access God. That was the furthest they could go. And it was likened to a mall on Black Friday, right? It was a zoo. There were animals running around. There's people trading and all of these things happening. And that's the only place that the Gentiles could go to pray. That is the furthest that they could go. So naturally, Jesus seeing this, Without announcement, it's so funny, he kind of rolls in there, doesn't say a word, and just makes a whip and starts driving them out. Without announcement, he goes into the temple courts, flips tables, gets the animals out of there. It was wildly and exceedingly disruptive. During Passover, this would have been incredibly inappropriate. God, may we make space for holy disruptions. Jesus then follows that action with words. He provides some context in verse 46. He says, And he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This verse, this saying, underscores the great chasm between the intent of the temple, right? Why it's there versus what it is today, right? It's supposed to be this place where people of all nations, all backgrounds, can encounter the living God. But you guys have turned it into a place of financial ruin. You are trying to rob people of their finances. And so he's identifying the chasm here. And it's interesting because he's quoting their own scripture back at them, right? He's quoting Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. My house was intended to be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. You've turned it into a place for your financial gain and exploitation. And so, he drives them out, right? One commentator said it this way. By allowing the court of the Gentiles to be a noisy, smelly marketplace, the Jewish religious leaders were interfering with God's provision. They were a den of robbers because they took financial advantage of the people, but also because they robbed the temple of its sanctity. The religious leaders were at fault. And so Jesus disrupts the system. He disrupts their economic game. And then he tries to reclaim the purpose of the temple. And we see this. He actually starts to come back to the temple and preach the good news. He's trying to drive out all the things that ruin the temple. And he's trying to reclaim it and reestablish it with his teachings, which we see in verse 47. It says, and again, remind, I want to remind everybody, this is his last week. He knows this. This is his last week of ministry because we know what will come at the end of the week. And so with this in mind, he comes back every day to the temple. And verse 47 says, Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they, they, they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. So he cleans out the temple and then he just decides to come back each and every day to start teaching the good news, right? And as this is happening, the Sanhedrin, that would have been the religious elite of the time. The Sanhedrin is having their council meetings, their board meetings. They're like, we got to take this guy out because he's acting like God, right? We got to take this guy out because he's doing things that he should not be doing. And so they meet regularly while Jesus is teaching in the temple to try and figure out how to kill this man. But there's one problem. They can't get away with it because there's so many people around, right? There's people there. 
There's people listening to Jesus. So they can't just arrest him and put him on trial because there would be a riot, right? But get this, the people aren't just listening. They are spellbound. They are locked in. The Greek word is exocremata, which literally means they are hanging on his lips. They are listening to every single word Jesus says. Rightfully so, right? For the good news, they are locked in. And we've all been here before, right? How many of you, you have a TV show, right? <laughs> Y'all know where I'm going with this. You have a movie that you're watching, and you're just so locked in, right? You're watching the movie. You forget where you're at, right? You forget uh, what you were doing. You forget everything going on in the world. You even forget about who you are, right? You come out of the movie, you're like, where am I, right? Some of us have been so locked in, so much so, that if someone turned the TV off, you'd be ready to throw hands and fight them, right? Anyone been there, right? You'd be so mad. What are you doing interrupting my show? For me, it's the Lion King and Remember the Titans. Okay, if I'm watching that, just letting you guys know as a warning, you've been warned. If I'm ever watching that and you turn it off, I will be really mad. And I know it's like funny, like a joke for the sermon, but I'm being very serious right now. I would be very mad at you, right? Uh, for some of you, for some of you, it is, um, it is CBS's uh, Amazing Race or Survivor or Big Brother, right? Uh, for others, it's the last couple laps of the Indy 500, right? Uh, or maybe it's the last few moments of a football game. And for some of you, let's be very candid, for some of you, it's The Bachelor, right? Right? <laughs> There's no judgment here. I won't judge you. God will, but I won't judge you, right? We all have these shows that we're mesmerized by, that should someone turn it off, we get mad. And so these people were mesmerized by the teachings of Jesus. They were locked into the good news that should the Sanhedrin step in, should they take Jesus out of there, there would be a riot. So the Sanhedrin identifies this, like we can't, we can't get away with it this way. We have to do something differently. So they come up with a plan B in chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and telling the good news, which people are hanging on to, the chief priests and the scribes came with the elders and said to him, Tell us, but what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? So while Jesus is teaching the good news, he was suddenly disrupted by the Sanhedrin, right? They decide, we can't, okay, we can't just kill him. That's not going to work. But, but we can ruin his credibility, right? We could throw a question out there that he might respond by saying, like, oh, I'm God. And then we could legitimately put him on trial and we could kill him. So let's just publicly ruin his credibility, Let's have it so as people are listening to him, they think, oh, he's actually not the kind of person that they thought he was, right? Let's publicly ruin his credibility so people wouldn't be so enamored by him anymore. And so they brought this question to Jesus, not for the purpose of hearing his response, but for the purpose of making him look like a fool. And it's really important that we make this distinction. So they ask, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority, Jesus, did you clean the temple? Who gave you authority to do that? Who told you that that was okay? By what authority do you disrupt our religious practices and our monetary profits? Who said you could do that? By what authority do you now teach here at Passover to all these people? What authority do you have? You're not a priest. You're not a scribe. You're not even a politician. You're just a rabbi. Who said you could do this? By what authority do you have to do these things? In essence, what they're asking him is, who are you to do these things? Should he answer God, then they could find, they could use that as grounds for a trial, right? And so they're trying to publicly humiliate him. They're trying to undermine him. Again, this isn't a question of curiosity, but they have a motive, and it's designed to humiliate Jesus. And Jesus replies with a question, 
which when Jesus replies with a question, you know you're in trouble, right? That's like if you yell a question to your parents, and then they ask you a question back. You're like, ooh, (laughs) right? So Jesus replies with a question in verse 3. He answered them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? They discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. This would have been another one of those really cool TikTok or Facebook moments that you see online, right? Where you see people kind of like debating and it's like, oh, he said that, right? This would have been that moment. Remember, this is unfolding in front of everyone, right? And almost everybody, most people, most locals knew who John the Baptist was. A lot of people affirmed his divine calling on his life. A lot of people, in fact, in Mark 1, it says that John actually baptized most of the people in Jerusalem. And so Jesus throws this question back at them. Everyone would know who John the Baptist is. They would not only know him, but they would affirm his ministry. They would say there's a calling on John's life that is unlike any other. He was sent by God. His calling is divine. It is not of human origin. So people would have been thinking this. Now get this. This same guy, John, who baptized most of Jerusalem, the guy whom many saw as having a heavenly calling, is the same person who announced the authority of Jesus in Mark 1. John in Mark 1, if we remember, says, After me comes the one more powerful than I. Referring to Jesus, right? The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see where Jesus is going with this, right? So when Jesus is asking if the baptism of John was of heavenly origin or if it was from human origin, he's asking basically where did his authority come from? And if they say human origin, that John didn't have the authority, which it would imply that the baptisms, the teachings, everything that John said would be in vain. If the Sanhedrin said that he had human, uh, his, his authority came from human origin, such a claim would bring great shame upon the Sanhedrin because everybody knew John's calling was valid. Everybody knew John's calling was from God. And so for the Sanhedrin to say it wasn't would bring shame upon themselves, right? However, however, if they say his authority was from heaven, then everything that John did would be valid. Everything that John did would be worth following, even when he affirmed the authority of Jesus, right? even when he pronounced the authority of Jesus, which so many people saw, right? So to say that would also bring great shame on the Sanhedrin. So do you see the conundrum here, right? Do you see the situation that the Sanhedrin is in? If they say either one answer or the other, both of them will bring shame upon themselves. Both of them will reinforce and prove the ministry of Jesus, and both of them will not win them any admiration from the people. And so their attempt, their second attempt to try and kill Jesus in this moment does not work. And so they come up with a third, a third answer in response to Jesus' question. Instead of saying human origin or from heaven, they say, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know. You've stumped us, right? One theologian summarized it this way. If they could not answer this question, they were obviously incompetent to decide as to the authority by which Jesus worked, right? In their attempt to bring shame upon Jesus publicly, they actually brought shame upon themselves. Their attempt fails, they can't kill Jesus, and they can't seem to publicly ruin him either. So that's when you know if Jesus responds with a question, you are in trouble, right? The passage then concludes in verse 8. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. I don't think this is Jesus being stubborn or mean. 
what I think it's actually. Jesus doesn't tell them because there's no need to tell them something, one, they already know, but two, will never, ever acknowledge, right? They approached him with hostile intent to undermine him, not to hear him out. So perhaps he doesn't owe them an answer because they were never really coming for one in the first place. This is how Jesus starts his last week of ministry. He's fighting and he's advocating for people, all people, the Gentile and the Jew, to encounter him. He's fighting for everybody to have the space to encounter the living God, to coexist with their creator, right? Even against all opposition, even against the Sanhedrin, he is fighting tooth and nail that all may have access to the grace, the kindness, the compassion, and the forgiveness of our God, right? At, our, our, at the church here, our, our mission is to make it simple for people to connect with Jesus and each other, right? Our, we, we hope that our role is moving the boundaries out of the way that we can encounter God here, right? And we see Jesus doing that very literally by flipping tables and driving vendors out of the marketplace. This is how he starts his last week of ministry. God, may we make space for holy disruptions. As Christians, we believe that Scripture should have a cumulative effect on our lives, right? Uh, as one thing I learned growing up is that a lot of times Scripture can teach you more about you, it can teach you more about God, and it can teach you more about the world that you live in, right? Uh, and the long-term effect of Christians wrestling with the scriptures is that, that the cumulative effect is that over time we're growing more into the likeness of Jesus, right? Over time, people see, oh, something's different about you, right? Over time, there's this effect that God uses the words in scriptures to shape us. And so what I want to do as we, uh, as we get closer to wrapping up here is to figure out what is God inviting us to as a church, what is God inviting me to in my life? How can I make space for holy disruptions? Because we have, and I want to make two kind of observations and pose a question here. And the first one being, we have a God who creates holy disruptions, right? I mean, cognitively, we can all accept that you can't get through life unscathed in, in regards to uh, disruptions, right? But what if God actually wants to use our pain? What if God actually wants to utilize these disruptions in our life so that we can encounter him in a new way? I heard a quote this week in a podcast. Is that it's that the, the best ways that people are transformed is through suffering and love, Right? The best way that people experience transformation is either through great pain or through great love. And so what if God can use these disruptions to shape us? Looking over the past couple years, what if God could use all those things to make us the best church that we could be? That you, we've heard it said that God allows these things for our formation, right? And so what if God can use these disruptions? So maybe instead of praying against all disruptions, we say, God, make space for holy disruptions. I pray that this disruption will enable me to encounter you in a new way. I pray that this disruption will enable me to journey with you in a way that I've not before. I pray that you can use these holy disruptions in my life, and I pray that I can make space for holy disruptions. Because we have a God who creates holy disruptions. A God who's willing to flip the tables of our idols, right? Our obsession with money, our, our, our security in money, right? Our obsession with power, safety, and control, our obsession, our own idols of, of our political parties or affiliations, right? Our obsessions with ourselves. A God who flips the tables of my arrogance, my pride, my lack of compassion, empathy, and grace. But we also have a God that flips tables of seemingly good things, right? Things that were like, that's not a bad thing. Why would you flip that table, right? He was disrupting good economic practices in the time. That was a very efficient system that they had in the temple to raise money in the temple. God was disrupting their good economic practices, right? He was disrupting their religious practices and disciplines, right? If, if all the animals are driven out, then what are we going to use to sacrifice, right? He was disrupting that, right? 
He even disrupts the religious uh, Passover festival, right? He's disrupting all these seemingly good things. What if we took away this building, took away the lights, took away our awesome kids' ministry and student ministry programs? What if we took away the good messages? What if we took all that away? Would Jesus be enough to hold our admiration, right? If he disrupts our desire for a perfect church family without any flaws, with perfect music and a perfect pastor, if he flips these tables, would we still approach the temple with the desire to encounter a living God, right? We have a God, and it's a good thing. We have a God who creates holy disruptions. So what tables in our lives do we need flipped? What things do we hold so tightly to that prevent us from encountering God in maybe a way that we should, right? What tables need to be flipped? Because Jesus wants to disrupt and dismantle the temple of our souls to flip over every table, every obsession that we have that prevents us from encountering him. And so may we pray the prayer, God, help me make space for holy disruptions. Now y'all know me. (laughs) I'm not saying that this makes disruptions any easier. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to pretend that giving disruptions a meaning and a purpose makes it easy and lighthearted, right? It's not easy, right? It is difficult. It's like a, it's like a cancer diagnosis. It's a terrible thing. But it's really important to figure out what's going on, which is what a cancer diagnosis does, right? It is good that we have this awareness now of what is going on so that we can fix it, right? And so disruptions are like that. They unearth some stuff in our life that we could address it, let God bring redemption and restoration to it so that we may grow closer in our relationship with him. And so God, we pray that we would make space for holy disruptions. So the two questions I asked, one I already asked, what tables need to be flipped in our lives, right? We all got them. Pastors got them, staff has them, elders, everyone's got tables, right? The second is CLC, will we be a disruptible people, right? Will we be a disruptible people? How will we respond to God's holy disruptions? Because we could do one thing. We could say, yeah, you know, that's probably a good idea to flip that table. Let me even pick up some of the pieces and take it out of the temple myself. I will co-participate with God in removing these tables, right? Or some of us might be accustomed to asking, what authority do you have to intrude on my life? God, what authority do you have to invite me into a different way of living? What authority do you have to allow this pain to happen in my life? What authority do you have to tell me what to do with my time, my resources, and my energy? God, what authority do you have to tell me how to handle conflict? What authority do you have to inform my political opinions? What authority do you have? We don't know how the merchants responded when their tables were flipped. But we know how we can respond. Church, I'm inviting us to be considerate of what tables we have in our lives that need to be flipped. My prayer, church, is that we would recognize our need for an encounter with Jesus. And it was so beautiful to see those new members standing here moments ago to profess how they've encountered God here. That is something worth celebrating. That is something we should be proud of as a church, that God is doing a work here, even when we may not always see it, right? And so let's continue to lean into that. May we recognize our need for an encounter with Jesus. Let's not shrink back and seize authority and power ourselves and control over our lives, right? Because disruption just reminds us that we don't have control. So let's not lean back and try and hold so tightly to our tables. But let's pray that we'd identify our own tables and that we would let go of these things. That we would be open to the unexpected, the ordained, and holy disruptions, knowing that they could be the means by which we can encounter God. And this is something that we've been talking about through the whole book of Luke, right? Something we've been talking about through the whole road trip. It's just moving the barriers that are in our way to encounter a loving, gracious, compassionate God who wants nothing more than a relationship with his children.
So may we trust the disruptive yet redemptive work of God in our lives that we might encounter God. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the band up, and we're going to close out with a song. Um, Before we sing together, uh, as I mentioned, we hear the scriptures, and the hope is that we're not just hearing them and growing in head knowledge, right? Uh, Someone uh, told me once that it should start, start in the head, move to the heart, and then move to the hands, right? It starts in our head. We're aware of it. Man, we make a decision that impacts our life, and then we live it out, right? And so what I want to invite us to do is I'm going to pray a prayer in a couple minutes to maybe um, figure out how can we move from the head to the heart? How can we move from this place of like, I'm aware of this story now to, my gosh, God is doing a work in my soul, and I just want to receive that, right? Because we believe later that week, the Sanhedrin was not successful in killing Jesus, but Jesus was successful in laying down his life for us. Jesus was successful in laying down his life for us so that we would have an encounter with this gracious and incredible God. That we might be, as Paul calls it, living temples, both experiencing and bringing about God's kingdom and presence to earth. Later that week, many of the people who were locked in listening to Jesus teach the good news were the same people shouting, crucify, right? And so Jesus, out of great compassion, love, and kindness for those people, for the people crucifying him and for us, journeyed to the cross and died a death that we deserved. And he was on the cross. And once he was taken down on the cross, he was put in a tomb. And three days later, we know the story, but we forget the significance all the time, right? He beat death. They thought this biggest disruption, death, was it. But no, he disrupts death and experiences resurrection. And he invites us to do the same. And the epitome of our faith, what it means to be a Christian, is not to have all that together. It's not to be perfect. It's not even to have the right answers. But it's just a lifelong journey of moving tables out of the way that we would encounter God. And so what I want to invite us into, what I want to challenge you guys to consider, is what tables are in my way. How can I move that out of the way to encounter God? And so I'm going to pray a prayer that's a prayer of our confessing what tables are in the way. And then a prayer where we can lean into what God has for us. A prayer of us saying, I'm going to clear this temple with you, Jesus. I'm going to clear this temple with you. I'm going to clear the temple of my soul that, so that I can experience you. And I'm going to join you in this journey. And so I invite you, church, as I pray this prayer, come up with your own words if you'd like. But let's pray this together as a church. Heavenly Father, we've confessed that we've hidden behind our tables. We've hidden behind our tables. We've hidden uh, behind control or this idea that we have control. And we fight so hard to keep it intact. But God, you are a God of holy disruptions. And you're inviting us to, into something far better than we could ever conjure up. And so God, we confess that we've had these tables. And today we ask that you would flip these tables for us. That we would be co-participants in this process. God, we trust even though we don't understand it all the time, we trust, even though we don't feel it all the time, that you are a great God who loves us and wants nothing more than a relationship with us. So God, we pray that we would lean into that. We pray that we would put our faith in you, that we would trust that these things you say are true and that you really do have the best in store for us. And so God, we give you our faith, we give you our trust, and we lean in. And God, we know we're not gonna do this perfectly. You even tell us we're not going to do it perfectly, but that's okay. You, your grace is sufficient for us. So God, we pray that we would lean in, that we would become part of this family here at the CLC, that we would not just keep this you know, in our heads or in our hearts, but that you would transform our life from the inside out here at this place and in the world. And so God, we trust that what you did on the cross that week. We trust that what you've done in the tomb and, and your resurrection, we trust that those things bring us life and life to the fullest. And so God, we receive that gift now. And we thank you for that gift now. God, you've loved us tremendously. May we learn more to love you each and every day. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to close out with a song called Glory, Honor, and Power. And I invite you as you sing this song, keep praying that prayer to yourselves like, ah, God, let me make space for holy disruptions. And let's declare that we have a God who disrupted death. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
you could submit questions. Uh, if you go to clcfamily.church slash PNC, you could see uh, the email address where you could submit questions between now and Tuesday at noon. We invite you guys to come out to that. Um, we'd love to have you here for that. And then next week is the week uh, that uh, members of the church will vote on the PNC nomination. So I do want to remember, uh, remind you all of that. I do want to remind us too that uh, I think it really does take a village. Uh, life's disruptions can be really complicated and messy. And so I encourage you to find community here that you can uh, journey through the disruptions with, right? It's a lot easier to flip a table when you got two to three people working on the same table. And so I invite you to lean in, figure out what that looks like for you here at this church. I did want to let you know we will have some of our elders, Beth Henry and Bill Hostetter and myself, will be right here uh, at the foot of the stage if anyone needs to chat or wants to pray. Um, but that is it, guys, this week. Let's go flip some tables and let's experience incredible encounters with God. All right? Amen? All right, y'all have a great week. Oh